You know, I was reading about something the other night, last night or the night before, and I ended up coming across Avril Lavigne. I ended up coming across Avril Lavigne. Lavigne. I came across that, and I hadn't thought about her in a very long time. And she was never really on my radar. That's the thing. I remember she must have come out around 2004, 2005, I'm guessing. It was near the end of high school for me. I might even have already been graduated. I don't know. But I, I remember her coming out. I know that I've heard. I, I know that I heard her two main songs. I know that I heard her two first big hits because they were. You just heard them everywhere. And uh, but the weird thing was like like there was this huge like she was obviously very heavily marketed, and had a big fan base at that time. You know she was a big performer. Like I'm, I'm sure that a lot of that was like the marketing and just everything that was pumped into her. But still, like, she she was obviously very big. I mean, an ultra celebrity. She was an ultra celebrity. <laughs> you ever heard of this girl, Avril Lavigne? She's like this ultra celebrity. Uh, she was, though. But what I remember about it, too, though, is this massive backlash. There were all these relatively normal people who would be like, I just hate Avril Lavigne. I just hate Avril Lavigne. I hate him. Like, and they were, you know, I think it was because like she was such an obvious poser. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the girls like. Like, I don't know what Avril Lavigne is like. Okay, I don't know what Avril. Lavigne, I'm just. This entire episode is just gonna, just gonna be like me saying the same thing in, in both voices. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I. I don't even know what Avril Lavigne's like. I don't though. I really don't know what she's like as a human being, and I didn't feel anything about her. I remember she would wear like a baggy tie, like that thing that pop punk people would do. Punks love that. Like even even kids who are legitimately into punk, they always love the whole like wearing a tie thing, like an a good ironic tie. I don't know why they got so into that. I guess I, I mean I do know. I know. Which is that the, it, it was like making fun of like corporate, business, political America. But at some point, and I mean, it's kind of, les it's like lesbian fashion. It's like trans man fashion too. Which is heavily borrowed from like punk teenage boy sort of aesthetics. It just is. I mean, that's not me being mean. I don't, I don't, I don't say that with a snarl. It's true. Like you see a lot of like lesbians and trans males who kind of dress like teenage boys dressed in like the pop punk era. It's just, that's an attractive aesthetic to them. Uh, I mean, I even, I mean, I, I'm onto something here. I mean, like I'm not making this shit up because I was thinking I was at the grocery store a couple months ago and there was a trans male, trans man wearing uh, a gutter mouth shirt. And I hadn't thought about gutter mouth in like 20 something years i haven't thought about gutter mouth in 20 something years i'm pretty sure that's a pop punk band i remember the reason i know who they are is my friend ryan who died when i was 16 he was really into all that fat records just all sorts of stuff and uh, he was into gutter mouth and so that's a band that you know it doesn't come up much i mean like it's like she was, it's as if she was wearing like a Millen Colon shirt, that Swedish pop punk band. Like there's, I have those, I was never into those particular bands, but they're swimming around in my head because it was like right around that time we were 12 or 13. 
and kids were just like like little boys were just starting to like dip their toes into like pop punk and punk and just different things. And I remember like friends of mine being into Millen Colin and uh, Guttermouth. So, so I mean, I, I'm not making this up. Like, I, I, I forgot about that connection that sometimes you actually do see them wearing, like, pop-punk merch. Uh, but the aesthetic looks like that, so it's not a surprise, like, they're into that. But it is how they look, many of them. And, uh, anyway, that going, you see them wearing ties a lot. Like when they don't have to, like you'll see them in public as just part of their like casual get up. Like they'll just be wearing like otherwise kind of normal clothes and have their hair dyed, but then they'll be wearing a tie. And that goes back like, like the sort of like slacker dudes, like the early kind of like slacker type guy. He would do that as a joke, things like that. Punks, punks would do that. You know, there was an irony to it. A lot of talk about this tie thing, but I, I, I've never actually thought about what I just said before about, like, that whole tie aesthetic. Like, I've always seen people do it, but I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that's something people are into. And then now you see it among, like, LGBT people. Um, particularly, like, young women who are trying to present as masculine. They'll wear the, the sort of ironic tie. But I don't know if it's even ironic anymore. I don't even know anymore. Uh, but Avril Lavigne, haven't forgotten Avril Lavigne. She she would wear that tie. I think that was like her signature look at the time. She would wear like a like a wife beater tank top and like baggy sagging pants, baggy saggy pants, with her underwear showing. And it was I think it was like guys boxer briefs or something or boxers maybe. There was a little window at time in the nineties. I mean, Avril Lavigne's a little later. She was like the mid-2000s, I think. But there was this little period in like the late 90s where kind of like alternative girls were wearing like men's plaid boxers and kind of showing them. I don't know if other people remember that, but at least in my area, there was a little trend of that. Girls wearing plaid boxers and kind of showing them. But Avril Lavigne kind of had that look. Like for all I know, she might have worn boxers. She, I could totally see Avril Lavigne wearing a pair of plaid boxers. I could totally see Avril Lavigne wearing a pair of plaid boxers. Uh, but yeah, she would show her underwear. I know that. And wear baggy pants. Like probably a chain wallet. Just going down her whole body in my mind. Imagining all her accessories. Bracelets. Wristbands. Who knows. Really, really dark eyeshadow. Raccoon eyeshadow. Obviously very pretty. Just, just a, a basic pretty girl not basic but like your standard pretty girl but also with like this kind of canadian off-brand look to her <laughs> I, I i never quite <laughs> i never quite put my finger on what it was and that's it right there like she she does have that canadian off-brand look like very pretty like any man in the world would be proud to to call avril lavigne his wife <laughs> but it's like there is this canadian off-brand but like the, the canadian off-brand like standard pretty girl is amazing like that's a beautiful young woman uh, <laughs> but there is this, and she is Canadian. That's the thing too. It's like she comes across Canadian. But anyway, I came across her the other. Well, just to finish the what I was going into, like her aesthetic and stuff. Like 
for whatever reason, like she had a lot of like normal, like teeny bopper types who were into her. She was obviously a massively popular performer at that time. But then there was also this massive backlash. Like there were all these other people who were like, she's a poser. Oh, you know who sucks? Avril Lapine. Avril Lapine. Avril Lapine. She sucks. <laughs> that was. That. <laughs> there was. This, I remember seeing all this hate for her, and that was around the time the internet really started taking off too. And I feel like you would see it online. I'd be like, you know who the worst person in the world is? Avril Lapine. Avril Lapine. Avril Lapine. Um, so I think it was like part of that, like where, where this sort of, I'd call it a meme. I'm starting to work meme into, you know, I was very resistant to the word meme. Like, you know, as a linguistic conservative, I'm a late adopter with a lot of language, but I've lately I've started to get more comfortable with meme, like five years after everybody else. But Avril Lavigne was kind of a meme. Avril Lavigne was kind of a meme. Uh, it's a good song. It's a good rhyme. That's a rap. <laughs> That's my rap song. Avril Lavigne was kind of a meme. It's like a nursery rhyme rap. She was, though. She was kind of like a punchline. And and I think, but she also got a lot of hate. Way more than she deserved. Like, I, I never saw that girl deserve any hate. I never saw her, like, do anything to deserve hate. She was just, it was just sort of like, oh, she's a Canadian off-brand girl who's kind of milking a certain hot topic aesthetic. Because, like, she was like the – she was like a – she was she seemed pretty shallow. Like, her aesthetic and everything, it seemed shallow even by hot topic standards. It was like a bridge between hot topic and just, like, tiger beat, teeny bopper mainstream. Like, she was kind of in between there. And I think that's why she got, she got so much hate. But, like, she got that hate from people, though, who – what the fuck were they into? Like, the kind of person who thought Avril Lavigne was somehow a threat. Like, that's what always gets me. You can you can read into – you can learn a lot about people from, like, what they see as a threat. And the people who were, like – who think they're into rock music or, like, think they're into punk or whatever they were who felt threatened by Avril Lavigne, like, what does that say about them? Like what the what the fuck does it say about you when like you feel like the things that you think are cool are somehow threatened by this off-brand Canadian girl who just like I mean because I mean her lyrics like the, those skater boy lyrics like they they are so abysmally bad like I'm not trust me I'm not looking to turn this in I've been defending her this entire time I'm not looking to trash Avril Lavigne at all like I said I think she would make a, a wonderful wife to any man. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, 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 and I, and again, I never saw her, I never kn have known of her to be a bad person. I'm defending Avril Lavigne here as best I can, considering I know nothing about her. But that said, like, if you read those skater boy lyrics, I mean, they're like, they're abysmally bad. Not just stupid pop rock, you know, you know, fake alternative rock bad. It's like, they are really, truly like just some of the worst lyrics you could ever come up with, you wouldn't even come up with those as a joke because your friends wouldn't laugh. So the fact she, that she was able to market that, though, because, I mean, if you're not familiar what that song is about, here I am dissecting Avril Lavigne songs, but uh, why not? Uh, that song's about, like, like a, a girl in school who gets hit on by a skater punk boy. She calls him, like, a punk. She's like... Like, you know, he was a punk or something like that, she says. 
so like this this popular girl i guess you know gets hit on by a skater boy he's alternative he's a punk and then she turns him down and then he goes on to be in a famous band and then she has a kid and she's like unhappily married and it's like a what could have been thing but then they're rubbing it in her face it's not a, it's not like oh that's that that sucks like she she judged the skater boy for the way he looked and she ended up in an unhappy marriage with kids while he's a rock star like it ends with like like Av from Avril Lavigne's point of view she's now with the skater boy and they're mocking the the girl who got married and is unhappy with kids whatever like who who's like oh I, you know I turned that guy down and he's rich and famous and rocking out and now that I actually break down what that song's about, it's actually incredible. Like, it really is. Like, think about that. It's it's not just like, oh, what could have been if the popular girl had decided to date the skater boy? It's like, not only is this girl, like, looking back, you know, regretfully about it, but then it's like Avril Lavigne then starts dating the guy, and now they're mocking that woman. That's the, that's the, the twist that makes me like it. There's this spite, this mockery. You know, that's that's pretty heavy duty for a Canadian. I mean, Canadians are very polite people. My experience with Canadians is they're very polite. So the idea of, you know, probably the most popular Canadian singer at that time making a song that's that ends in mockery and spite at a housewife's expense is kind of funny. Uh, but yeah, the people who felt threatened by her who felt threatened by these just like teen pop songs with like a, yeah, like not even like the most surface level hot topic. Like it's just funny to me when people are threatened by that. And, uh, and then just to finish the Avril Lavigne thought, when I came across her the other night, I, I somehow came across a video of her singing when she was a young teenager and she was singing in a bookstore. It looked like, I imagine it was like the Canadian version of, uh, borders books it looked like a chain they showed that it was like 90s vhs footage camcorder so it's even better and they showed the outside of the bookstore and yeah it, it just looked like a like a canadian like an, again it looked like an off-brand canadian barnes and noble or something you know i imagine they have their own version of that or they did just an off-brand barnes and noble is all it was off-brand borders with their off-brand darling Avril Lavigne singing inside this bookstore, which I, I am already going to like it. The idea of like a teenage Avril Lavigne just singing in a bookstore, like the last place you can imagine someone singing. Like, yeah, it's not a library, but at the same time, it is a bookstore where people are going to read a little bit to decide if they want to buy things. Like bookstores aren't supposed to be loud, but that just makes me like it more that they decided to have a, a concert for, she was probably a big deal. Like she, she had probably already made a name for herself locally. This is obviously a few years before she got famous. She looks like she was like maybe 13 or 14 in the video. Hard to tell, maybe 14. And uh, she's just singing pop ballads though. She's singing I th what I think are like mainstream hits. I don't think it was her music, but she's just singing these sort of mid-paced, drifting pop ballads, and it sounds so fucking good. Unironically, like I, you know, I, I was truly like, wow, this is beautiful. And she was, she, and she just was like this beautiful teenage girl, this beautiful off-brand teenage girl, which would be a good name for a pop punk song. Pop punk song. 
Just a beautiful off-brand teenage girl. Sometimes, like, uh, just <laughs> sometimes, like, like, really think about how a pop punk vocalist vocals sound. Like the way those guys sing. Imagine hearing that without the music. It's so fucking crazy. It's like this cartoon voice, and like people love it. Like people, people get emotional about that shit. Like there are people who listen to like Tom DeLonge from Blink One Eighty Two and like feel emotional about that guy's voice and what he's saying. I like Blink One Eighty Two personally. I don't have a bad word to say about Blink One Eighty Two. But still, like I'm aware of how that guy's voice sounds. And people used to make fun of. They used to say he he sounded like a muppet or whatever. But just that's there's tons of stuff. And like the more the crazier pop punk vocals, and I, I can't even think of who sounds like this. There's a ton of them. Where it's just like, she's just a beautiful, just a beautiful off-brand teenage girl. I can't even do it right. It's embarrassing to even try to do that. <laughs> it's, really, it's really just embarrassing to do that, even in my, in my own home. Like, imagining isolating the, the vocal track on, the, on a pop-punk song. But yeah, I, I recommend this video of Avril Lavigne. It's like a montage, so it's like... It's all from an old grainy VHS and it's just, it's beautiful music. And I wish she would have done that. Cause I mean, the reality is the music she actually ended up making is awful. Like she obviously has a really good voice, but the music she made is just really terrible. Cause they drifted it into that like pop rock thing, like pseudo alternative. She like hearing her voice, like sing these ballads. I was like, she has a wonderful voice. And you would never come across her, though, if that's how she sounded. Like, she never would have gotten big. Like, she managed to hit things at the right time to get big. Like, she couldn't have made it to where she made it if she had just done pop ballads in bookstores, in off-brand Canadian bookstores. But but still, like, I, I'm, I'm actually going to, when I have some time, I'm going to try to find other early Avril Lavigne, like when she was super young and just singing other people's songs in bookstores. I mean, it was seriously atmospheric. It was really good. But that, that hate, I want to go back to the hate that she got. And it's just like, who's threatened by that? Who's threatened by a girl like that becoming popular? Like, the only people who are, the only people who thought that she was a poser are like the next up on the poser list. Like on the poser spectrum, the people upset about her are already the biggest posers in the world. And those are the only people who could possibly feel threatened by her. Another one that was like that, that once again became a meme before the word meme was in use. When you think of the way it's used today, like the broad use of it. Uh, but the, the other one like her was Nickelback. And I don't know where that came from. I know who they are. I know, I know, I have an idea who they are. Like an off-brand creed. Like the, the guy didn't look right. You know, the guy, the main guy... He just didn't have a good look. He just had a, he, he just didn't have a good look. Like you don't want your rock stars to look like that. Like I understand why people didn't like them and thought they were stupid. I completely understand, but they became like this go-to worst band ever. And I would hear it all the time in person. Like I remember working in offices and stuff and people would just be like worst band ever. Nickelback. Nickelback. Worst band ever. Heard it all the time. 
And then I remember seeing it a ton on the internet as well, where they became this punchline or this meme, this joke. I mean, I saw it so many places. I mean, I still hear it. Sometimes you'll still still hear people, you know, talk about Nickelback. It, it became it, it became like a like an like the inverse of a Chuck Norris joke. And it was like the same sort of person who would say that. The same sort of person who was making Chuck Norris jokes would turn around and be like, oh, you know who sucks? Nickelback. 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 And I, like I said, I get, I get like why they suck. But I didn't understand what made them particularly, what made them a target. Like what made them so bad. Because that period of like post-grunge, like where bands... We're cl- clearly trying to huff on the fumes of grunge, but it was years later. They were clearly influenced. And all those guys, they looked like they were in their 30s already. Like Nickelback was one of those bands where I didn't really have any thought about them whatsoever. Like the music didn't sound any worse to me than what anybody else was listening to. Like they didn't sound worse to me than like a lot of the alternative rock and stuff that was popular. And so like I did but they, they kind of grossed me out because like they all looked like they were already in their mid to late 30s already and they might have been for all I know. Like the main guy like I know his name and I and there's a reason I'm bringing this up beyond just that they got a lot of hate but the main guy's name was Chad Kroger. I know I heard that but it's not something that I remembered. It's cuz I looked him up and I and actually I didn't. I didn't look him up. The reason I found his name is because he was married to fucking Avril Lavigne. I had no idea. I had no idea he was married to Avril Lavigne. I had zero idea. But it makes sense. They're Canadian. They were both hated and considered poser bands. They were both punchlines of jokes. They got a lot of shit. But the Canadian thing makes sense. Like It makes sense why these Canadians would find each other. But they were married later, too. It wasn't like they were married back in the day. It was something where they were married just a few years ago. But it surprised me. Because, I mean, obviously, she's not going to have, like, a real niche sort of interest. Like, she's not going to marry, like, a legitimately underground cool guy type dude. You know, she's not going to marry someone like that. And I I saw that she was married to, to a guy from, like, a famous pop punk band before that. But then she married the Nickelback guy, and I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. But what grossed me out about Nickelback, like the only thing, really, the only thing I ever thought about them is I didn't like to see them. Because you'd see them, you'd see, like, posters of them, you'd see them on TV, and I just didn't like to see the guys. Like, the music, whatever, to me, it wasn't substantially worse than what people consider good music. But it was, like, the sight of them. Because it's like they didn't know, they, they just didn't know how to look. Like, they, they just didn't know how to look right. And they all looked, like, way too old already. Like, Chad Kroger. Chad Kroger. He, he looked like he was already 37 when the band first got popular. But, yeah, they were married. I was, I was blown away. Just wouldn't have known that, though. Especially because it's later. The fact that, like, she got married. He's probably been married five times because he was 37, 20 years ago. But then the fact that, like, they found each other. Like, these two, like, fake alternative Canadian artists found each other. But then they divorced, I think. So the love story uh, ends somewhere. But 
but they, but then what they had in common is just they were the punchline of all these jokes. But they're both good examples of bands, like I said, where who's threatened by Nickelback? Who's threatened by that? Who thinks like the things they consider sacred and cool are threatened by the existence of Nickelback? Like grunge was long gone. They weren't doing something that was popular in the independent scene and making it mainstream because we know that, you know, that upsets a lot of people when a band basically just borrows the the most accessible parts of something that's niche and independent and broadcasts it to everybody, you know, a mature person can get over it, but but still, like I understand why that bothers people. But I, I couldn't understand why Avril Levine and Nickelback bothered anybody. It just seemed like this isn't this isn't that much worse than anything you like already. Like all these people who were like, fuck dude, worst band ever. It's like you probably listen to stuff that is way worse than Nickelback to me. And how is what they how how does what they do matter at all? But on the other side of that coin, like I never understood who's a fan of that either, particularly Nickelback. I never completely understood like who is an actual fan because it seems like there's so many alternatives to them. Like it seems like there's so many other bands where it's like the guys are a little uh, less disturbing looking. But uh, speaking of that, like every once in a while, like one band gets dumped on a lot. And another example that I remember was Puddle of Mud. And I'm pretty sure I don't. I have I have no idea. Like I remember Nickelback's popular song. I remember like their first hit. I know I've heard that many times. I have no idea what Puddle of Mud did. What I do remember is it was sort of post grunge, but maybe going something for something a little more edgy, because their name sounds like a new metal name to me. But I, I don't think they were new metal. If they were, it was just like barely, just like a tinge. Because a lot of things were taking on kind of a, a new metal tinge, as we call it. A lot of things were taking on a new metal tinge. And so they might have like a, a new metal tinge, but it was really just that same post-grunge thing. But I remember them getting a ton of hate, probably around 1998, 99. It was one of those things where they were like, oh, what do you listen to? I bet you listen to Puddle of Mud. It was an insult. It was a punchline. It was like Nickelback. Oh, what do you do? Oh, so you don't like the music I like? Well, what do you listen to? Nickelback, Nickelback, Nickelback. It was like, oh, what, are you going to go home and listen to Puddle of Mud? I bet you're into Puddle of Mud. It was one of those sort of things. But again, I don't know what attracted so much attention to them in particular. Like, what was Puddle of Mud that was doing that was so much worse than whatever was considered cool? That was a pretty bad time for music, though. You know, Britney Spears was good at that time. Thinking back to what's popular, like obviously some rap that people love and some R&B or something like that. But I mean, Britney Spears was really good. I mean, this is just fucking 90s bullshit. This is like, nine, oh, like 90s much? You know, this is just that kind of bullshit. But it's still, it, it, people look back on it, like, like people who are my age now and are like looking back at their own personal oldies. Are like, dude, the music when I was growing up in the 90s was so good. And when I'm actually thinking about it, like that late 90s, early 2000s period was actually pretty bad. It was actually pretty terrible. Because, you know, what you see with bands like Puddle of Mud and Nickelback is that like rap had gotten really big. 
rap was now the music of the youth. And there was a, a clear shift there. Where when my sister was in high school, grunge was still pretty big. Because all those kids had gone to, to – I mean, my sister went to Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden shows, like, as they were getting famous. And so, like, like people who graduated high school around the mid-'90s, like, they had actually gotten to experience that. And uh, people were still, like – they would still listen to the local rock station, 107.7 The End. And then around 1998, 99, there was just this sudden shift where all of a sudden, like, all of the kids – considered rap the be-all end-all like you weren't going to find girls who listen to rock even the worst mainstream rock like there was a a faction of pop punk girls they were their own little faction but other than that there girls were just they just kind of got into r&b and rap guys just kind of started listening to rap all the time that was right around the time i got to junior high our school dances were nothing but rap and it's still that that's that's still the world we're living in. Rap just it came, you know, like a cloud and it just stayed overhead. It's the the most poetic thing anybody said of, ever said about rap. But while that was going on, like while the the rap cloud came and just started raining on everybody around that time though is like when there really wasn't much good popular rock coming out. And you had bands like Nickelback and Puddle of Mud who were like claiming, I think part of it is that these people were like kind of claiming to be the last bastion of alternative rock in the mainstream. But it was just a bad time for that. And you saw too, where like, like a lot of things had that new metal, that new metal tinge to them. Like an old band would come out with a new album and it would have a little bit of that. Like Danzig released that album, Danzig. Danzig released that his sixth album, and it had kind of a new metal sound to it, just because that was what you did at the time. It's like if you were a doo-wop singer in the 50s, by the late 60s, you're, you're doing a, a late 60s sound. And if you're in the 70s, you're going to sing like the pop music of that era. You just kind of keep up with the times if you want to have a career. Sometimes it's a misstep. And I'm not out to make fun of new metal. I mean, I just, I just don't even really deal with new metal. I don't really, because I mean, like, it's been long enough since new metal that like there is this little like nostalgia for it that comes out, where it's like I actually miss that, dude. Does anybody else miss new metal? Uh, the cool thing about new metal is it's something that will never be completely rehabilitated. Maybe it will be, but like, there's a lot of music that like was popular for a minute, and then 20 years later, people are like, oh, you know what? Enough time has passed where, like, I actually really like that stuff. That stuff was actually really good. That's not really going to happen with new metal. Like, we live in a we live in a culture where your baby boomer parents today are like that Nirvana band that you, that my son, my Gen X son was listening to. You know, they're actually pretty good. There's like parents who just listen to Nirvana and Pearl Jam twenty four seven. And they're like, that music that Johnny was listening to 25 years ago, it's actually pretty good. I don't see older parents ever doing that with new metal. They'll never go back and like listen to the, the old new metal records their kids listen to and be like, actually, the kids were on to something. Whereas they've done that with grunge, they've done that with rock, you know, even, even decades ago. But you won't really see it happen with new metal. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's already happening. Uh, but but that era, yeah, it was just it was really bad aesthetics. 
it was uh, just the production sounded terrible. Just what was considered cool was bad. And, and it was also a time where you just like, you look back at it and especially like guys who just wanted to be in a band during that time. Like they weren't into any, they, they were just into like the red hot chili peppers, you know, grunge. They were just into what was ever big in the nineties and they would name their band just something random. And, uh, you look back and you're like, what were they thinking? And people are nostalgic for that time now, but I don't know. It was a weird time. And then, like, the fumes of that was Nickelbag, Nickelback, and Puddle of Mud, who got targeted. Because people were like, these guys are frauds. But I just never understood why they deserved any more hate than anything else. You know, someone would hate me for this, but it's like, I didn't feel like Puddle of Mud was that much worse than Tool. That's a pretty extreme comparison. Like, I get it. But still, like, to me personally, I didn't see the, I didn't see Nickelback as, like, significantly more deserving of hatred than, than a band like Tool that everybody respects. I understand that Tool's different. I understand that there's more going on. They, dude, Tool's got a, they're such good musicians and, like, uh, you know, I understand. And I'm not comparing them. I'm just saying as far as like my radar goes, those things weren't that far apart. And whatever I considered cool was like under no threat from shit like that. But I've talked about that before with pop punk and, and when kids get into quote unquote real punk. Like when I was in high school, I remember like when a kid would get into real punk, they would suddenly start hating pop punk. And all of a sudden, like, Blink-182 or Post. Blink-182 or you fucking suck. You know, it, they'd start hating on everything they were into six months earlier. Because now they're into real punk. But the only reason they felt threatened by pop punk is because they were fucking posers too. They were like the next rung up the ladder. And in reality, pop punk's cool. It's fun. I don't listen to it. I don't sit around listening to pop punk, but I actually like it. Not all of it. Plenty of disclaimers to saying this, but still, like I'm not, I'm not bothered by it. And honest, and I'd rather someone put on a pop punk CD than real punk. But uh, yeah, like when when kids get into punk and they're suddenly threatened by pop punk because like they're really uh, trying to run away from the shadow of who they were yesterday. It's like they know for a fact, like six months earlier, you were getting excited about Fat Records and MXPX. There we go. There's there's one from the vaults. I had a friend who was obsessed with MXPX, and he, and he was uh, he was defensive about it. like he he guarded it. Like if someone else bought an MXPX CD, he was like, "They're copying me." He he only heard about them from me. He only knows who MXPX is, excuse me. Kids get that attitude a lot. It's a very common attitude with music. I don't know what it is about music. Music brings that out of people. You wouldn't say that about a movie. 
Like if you brought your copy of Die Hard over to a friend's house and the next Monday at school, the kid's like, dude, I saw Die Hard over the weekend. It fucking ruled. I'm going to go buy it. The kid who brought Die Hard over to his house isn't going to be like, you only know about Die Hard because of me. He's not going to say that. He's not going like, to guard it. He's, he's nothing to protect. But there's something about music where, like my friend, like he introduced another friend to MXPX who I believe was Christian. They were local, but I think they got pretty big. If I, maybe, maybe it was just locally they felt really big because they had a song about Bremerton, I remember, because Bremerton's a city here. It's, it's our band, dude. Dude, it's, it's, it's our band. They're from here. They're, they're our boys. Now, I don't know what they actually were. I don't know if they were from here, but they had a song about a, a city in Seattle, not one that everybody would know across the country. And, uh, yeah, like a friend of mine introduced another friend to them. And then like when that, that, when that friend like bought a CD, he's like, he only heard about MXP from me. Like they wanted credit. Like that's a human ego. I mean, it's cute. I did shit like that. Of course I did shit like that. Some people do that their entire lives. I probably still do that unconsciously, you know, unconsciously sometimes there's something in us, but we do it about music for some reason. We don't do it. We, you wouldn't even do it about a book. You wouldn't even do it about a book. You wouldn't though. Like if you recommended a book to a friend and they bought it, or if they just saw a book at your house and bought it and read it, you probably wouldn't be bothered. You'd be like, oh, that's cool. Let's talk about the book. What we call talking about the book. Hey, would you like to come over on Saturday and talk about the book? Hey, would you like to come over on Saturday and talk about the book? It sounds like a Bible reference. Like, <laughs> would, you like to, would you like to come over on Saturday and talk about the book? But no, if that was the case, if a friend bought a book, you'd just be like, cool. We read the same book and we can talk about it. Oh, cool. Yeah, you heard about that movie. Cool. You saw it. But with music, you're like, it's mine. You turn into Smeagol. You're just like, it's my book. Or it's my book. It is my band. And kids would go around saying shit too. Like if a kid heard about another band from another kid, the original kid would sometimes, if they had ego issues, which is a lot of kids, would go around being like, you know, he only heard about that from me. Like the only reason he knows about that, as if people are going to go, oh, you're, as if people are going to respond favorably to that. Because kids are nasty, they would go along with it. Because basically what that was, it was like, let's be mad at, at Jeff. Why? Because he heard about this band from me, and now he likes him. But he doesn't really like him. He's just trying to be like me. That's some kids think. That's something adults think. That's something grown human beings think about each other. And people do copy each other. You know, it's, it's a monkey see, monkey do world. People do, I, I've copied things from people. I try not to, but I, I've taken influence from people. It's what we are. We're, we're all connected. You just have to be aware of it. You, you have to be conscious of it. Some people are not conscious of it. Like they do see a guy with a haircut and they're like, that guy's got a cool haircut. I'm going to get that haircut. Like a lot of people do live that way. I mean, we're seeing now the extent that it'll, it'll go. I won't go into that discussion. I won't get political here. Although this is politics to me. And I, you think I'm joking if you're listening. Those of you who are sticking it through, listening to this show. 
you think I'm joking. This is political to me. Talking about like when, when kids are going around school, the junior high hallways, the junior high hallways and saying, just so you know, like Mike, it's been a while since I brought up Mike. Mike only heard about MXPX because of me. Oh, Mike came over to my house and I played him that MXPX CD. You know what he did? He went out and he bought it. And now he's wearing an MXPX shirt. Yeah, Mike's probably a poser. So are you. Especially because you're so threatened by it. And a lot of people mature past that. But what I've noticed is I think sometimes they... They mature out of that, like caring about things like bands. And I don't even know what kids are doing now. Like for all I know, kids today are like, dude, like Jeff reposted uh, that YouTube video. I sent it to him. Jeff, did you see that video Jeff posted? I sent that to him. They're probably accusing each other of ripping each other off on social media. or Like when they do some sort of TikTok challenge. They're probably like, he got that from me. But we're seeing how, like, I don't even know if they care about social contagion. It's so out of control. I don't even know that kids are like that anymore. I I mean, their brains are probably so fried. Who knows if they're even doing that? But if I know kids, and I was once one, they're finding something to do that about. Because adults are doing it. I mean, adults do it constantly. I mean, I've seen grown women do it about clothes. I go, I mean, I heard a girl who I like. She was a girl that I got along with and liked. I was close to. Not in my life anymore. But one time she, like, in a whisper said, she was talking about this other girl who was kind of her rival. And she goes, like, she's only been wearing black for three years. So it's kind of an alternative, dark crowd of people. And this girl who I otherwise really I found intelligent and uh, self-aware, you know, in a candid moment, she was probably drunk, but still, it's a candid moment. She like leaned forward to a couple of us and goes like, you know her? She's only been wearing black for three years. And I'm, I, I didn't judge the girl who said that. It was just, but I was like, oh, this is a very raw moment. I'm, you're getting to see this judgment, this resentment of this other girl that comes through rivalry. Like, she's calling her a poser. Even though people don't throw that word around, even though people don't use the word poser very much anymore, they're still finding all sorts of other ways to accuse people of that. They're always doing these purity tests. Like, the idea of the poser is ancient. I think I've talked about this on here. I'm having a, a deja vu moment, but it's probably been years where I talked about ancient posers. Because of course it's ancient. You think that's new human behavior? Do you think that if you were alive in the 80s through 2000s, that those were the first posers on earth? I mean, this is some knowing our fallen nature. Do you really fucking think that the first posers on earth just decided to come around when pop punk was big, when Hot Topic was around? And do you not think the people who felt threatened by that and talk shit about it, like, they just have different ways of saying it. People are always accusing each other of being fake. It's what we do. Because we know, we know we're fake. We know so much of what we care about is fake. 
And once you accept that, it's easy. You don't care, you know, unless somebody truly is like stealing from you. Like unless somebody truly is actually taking something from you, it's hard to be upset about something being fake or someone being fake. And then you realize too, like who's to say what they're getting out of it? I mean, there, there are like new metal kids who went insane. They loved new metal so much. And I'm not kidding. Like those kids are real. Like there are teenage boys who actually loved new metal so much that they lost their minds for it. They just like went insane. It spoke to them. And even though you think of that shit, like you think a new metal is like the, like there's no real fan of that. It's like poser music made for poser fans. And there can't be any authenticity there. There's new metal. There were new metal fans who were the most dangerous people you'll ever meet. They were kids. I knew them. They were kids with a screw loose and they took new metal seriously. And those are the most dangerous kids you could imagine. I mean, uh, the Columbine shooters are sort of a variation on that. They're not the type of kids I'm thinking of, but still, they're a version of that where, like, the, the sort of stuff the Columbine killers were into was pretty much new metal. You think about that sort of, like, like, gothic industrial rock they were in. Like, as far as, like, the aesthetics and the sound and everything, it was basically just, like, a, a millimeter away from the new metal genre. And they were probably into some new metal as well. People who took that shit seriously, way more dangerous than anybody who was getting into like obscure black metal at that time. There were plenty of ex-cons who like, I mean, I, I, I played football with this guy when I was a kid named Griff. I don't know if that was his first name or his last name or what, but he was kind of a, a tough kid, like a, like a, a tough kind of redneck kid, a nice guy, but like still, like you kind of tell you a screw loose and probably came from a rough home. And then years later, like he disappeared. And then like years later, he showed up at my high school. He was going there and I had a class with him. And I remember like one time just kind of out of nowhere, he was just kind of, he was quiet, a decent looking kid. Like I think girls liked him enough, but he was kind of, kind of, blue collar family kind of rough and he's like sometimes man I, I just put on fucking drowning pool and i just want to you know fucking like wreck shit and i was like he's serious like he's like i just put on bodies hit the floor that was like a, that was a big song at that time like the bodies hit the floor thing and uh he was talking about that and he's like, sometimes man, I just like when I'm at home, man, I, I just put on fucking drowning pool, like bodies hit the floor and I just want to fucking wreck shit. And I, I could tell, I can't possibly do his voice, but I was like, he means that like when this kid puts on drowning pool, like he thinks about fucking shit up. Like he feels something. And so kids who were like legitimately unhinged or had like bad backgrounds or just something like they would listen to that crap and it meant something to them. It's pretty crazy. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, ancient posers. You know, that's, of course, always been around. As well as people feeling threatened by it. But I, I don't know. I never understood why it was music in particular. I mean, I, I do on an intuitive level. Because music did something for me as well. Like, music made me defensive. Even though I feel like I outgrew whatever that is that like makes you guard it. I felt like I, I just sort of found new ways to guard it. 
or even among friends. And I mean, I, I see this among friends of mine who have, who are always digging for new stuff and are treasure hunters when it comes to music and they're defensive about it. Like they'll find a new band that nobody heard of from 1982 and be like, don't tell anybody about this. And I've even heard adult friends say shit like, oh, he only knows about that because of me. Like we still, we like to take credit for other people finding something, even if we didn't make it. We really want to be in the credits. We really want to be thanked. It goes back to what I always talk about, like just how many human beings like don't even care about being liked. They want to be acknowledged and how social media kind of mapped that out with these like systems, these like buttons, favorite buttons. What that is, it's, it's an acknowledgement button. Like when someone gets a buzz because they got a thousand likes on Twitter, they were like, I got acknowledged a thousand times. It's like they went to an event and a thousand people walked by their table and were like, good to see you here. Didn't stop and converse. They walked by and they nodded or bowed. That's kind of what the, the Facebook like system is and Twitter and all that. And the fact that it's every single platform, every platform developed that, even ones that didn't need it because people want that acknowledgement. But then guess what? That created a new problem because if you don't get that acknowledgement, you feel slighted, you feel worse. Like when someone posts something on Facebook, they feel worse than they would have if they didn't post it, if nobody likes it or if they get one like. And people evaluate each other based on that. They're like, how many likes did he get? How many likes does he get? How much engagement does he get? You know, people notice that about each other. Like, like their women notice it. Like I've talked about, I've talked many times about that friend of mine who like in a candid moment admitted that like it bothered her that this guy she had dated had a low follower count on Instagram. I overheard her say that to another female friend. And again, I I didn't react with, oh my God, she's stupid. It was just like, oh, I'm getting some insight into not just your psychology, but the psychology of women. That one of the things social media has allowed them to do is evaluate men based on what sort of response they get, how people feel about them, status. And, you know, and people generalize about that and they say that like women want a man with status, but there's truth to it. And it's not, it's not just a bad thing. I mean, people use that as a weapon. They hurl at women and they're like, oh, she, women are just interested in a guy with status. And it's like a ton of shit goes along with status, a certain level of security Like when they see that a man gets a favorable response from his circle or his community, when they see that a man is respected, it's not like they're just hungry for a popular guy. It's like that brings with it a certain infrastructure. It can also hide something horrible. You know, we know that men who are the most charming and popular can have the darkest secrets. But overall, like what attracts a woman to that? I can't say what it is. But I don't think it's just I don't think it's just uh, shallowness. I think a part of it is okay. This guy has an infrastructure. This guy has a social infrastructure around him, and uh, a lot of people acknowledge him. He has a certain amount of respect, maybe. 
But going back to just the acknowledgement that people seek for themselves, like they evaluate other people based on how people acknowledge them. But they, uh, they also uh, really take it to heart in their own world. And on every single platform, people are evaluating themselves based on the sort of acknowledgement they get. And they're tailoring themselves to that. Like there's people who are like, how can I change myself to get more acknowledgement? I don't think they're seeking a whole lot more than that, most people. And that's a newer development, you know, where the way the internet was set up earlier on was very much based on an investment of your time, where if you wanted to acknowledge somebody, you had to comment, you had to post something. Like thinking back to some of these earlier social media uh, sites, like I'm pretty sure on MySpace that you could only, the only way to interact with somebody beyond just looking at their pictures and or messaging them privately, I'm pretty sure was to comment on their photos or to like leave, there was a way to like leave a comment on their page. It was like a guest book. It really was, it wasn't much different from a guest book. Or you could just post a short comment on their page or respond to their comments. But the only way you could acknowledge them was to type something. And LiveJournal was like that. Which I understand to be really popular in Russia now. You know, teenagers here lost interest in it. And now just like normal people are on LiveJournal in Russia. But LiveJournal was that way where it, it was like modern social media, but kind of a blog version, obviously. It's called LiveJournal. And you had a feed, like you had a chronological feed of what, what people would post. And when I look back, I had a LiveJournal at one point. I must have had 10 friends. Because it's not like a lot of kids in my school were using it. And it was all classmates, mostly girls. Girls really took a lot. It was very feminine. Live journal was very feminine for whatever reason. But uh, I knew some girls in school who had it and stuff, and I had one. And you, you just go to this page, and it would show you like a chronological feed of what your friends on Live Journal had posted. And there was no like button. All you could do is comment. And everything was set up that way. You know, forums were the primary way that people communicated with strangers and everything, chat rooms. So. Engagement required you to actually engage and invest. Like even if it was a one-word comment, it was still a, a word. And so the the invention of the acknowledgement button is crazy because it lowered the stakes of acknowledging somebody. Because if somebody commented on something, that meant something. You know, it, it's the same thing as in the flesh. If somebody comes up to you and talks, even if it's just, hi, how are you? That means something, that they took the time to do that. They invested time. If someone just waves or nods, you were acknowledged and they moved on. That's what the like button is. When someone likes somebody's post, all they're doing is waving from afar. I see you. I know you. I see you. I know you. It's a pop punk song. I see you, I, I know you. You never seem to see me back. Pop punk song, man. I need to get I need to start writing some. I see you, I know you. You never seem to see me back. That sounds like a real song, like the tune. I feel like I mean they all sound like that.
That's all it was. Like that's all like uh, a like button is. It's like I see you, I know you, and you want to be acknowledged back. Like one of the the very first uh, shitty grandpa comic I made that wasn't even a comic was just a single panel, just in black pen. And it was the grandpa kneeling down saying to the grandson, in order to get likes, you got to give likes. But it's true. I mean, human psychology works that way. Where, like, if you like a certain, <laughs> if you like a certain amount of someone's posts, they're more likely to like your posts. Because it's the same thing as like, an, it's, it. People would laugh at that because we're talking about the internet, yet we see how fucking important the internet is to people's psychology. People are afraid to admit how much this stuff impacts them. But when, uh, it's true though, like, because I noticed this back when I was using Facebook regularly, probably in the early 2010s, where I noticed that like, if you just like semi-regularly like a certain person's posts, suddenly they start doing it back to you. They were like, he acknowledged me. Oh, he always says, he always waves at me. I'm going to wave back. It makes it, what, what you communicate to them is, I don't hate you. Because when you don't get acknowledgement from somebody, you think they hate you. Like if you see a, a pretty girl from class out in public, you're at Borders Books, watching a Avril Lavigne sing. Teenage Avril Lavigne. She's not even famous yet. No, but you, you see a pretty girl from school, like out in public somewhere, and she doesn't acknowledge you. It means she doesn't know who you are, in which case, like, your awareness of each other is one-sided, which is a psychological disaster for you. The idea that you know who somebody is, and maybe even like them, have a crush on them, and that they don't know who you are, or are pretending not to know, or they do know and they don't want to acknowledge you because they don't like you. That's where your brain goes as a human being. If somebody doesn't acknowledge you, you assume the absolute worst. Or worse than the worst, they don't even know who you are. They don't even know. That happens on social media. Or like it, It's like if uh, it, it's kind of like asking somebody to do something. Like asking somebody to hang out. Like, if you call somebody once a week for four weeks and say, Hey, I was thinking maybe we could uh, go catch a ball game together. Hey, I was thinking maybe we could get tickets to the ball game and maybe go uh, have a couple beers and maybe have some hot dogs and watch the game. And every time they ask you, you're like, Oh, I'm busy. I can't do it. Eventually, they're going to get the, the pick. As long as they're not totally out of their mind, like eventually they're going to get the idea that like, oh, you never want to hang out. You're always nice. You're always polite. But you don't want to hang out. And they're going to stop doing it. Similarly, too, like let's say somebody calls you regularly and asks you to hang out. And some of the time you go, but you never call them. Like you never go out of your way to contact them. Some relationships are that way. Like, I, I have people who I love who are among my favorite friends. But I won't necessarily contact them unless they contact me first. And they kind of understand that's the dynamic. Like, I have a really good friend from high school that's that way. I love the guy. 
but it just tends to be like just the nature of our friendship is that he's more likely to message me or call me. It's not because there's any any weird like power dynamic or anything. It's just purely just how it is. But with a lot of people, like especially when you don't know somebody very well, like if they start to feel like it's one-sided, like, oh, you know, I'm the only one who ever asks, I'm the only ever, one who ever messages her. And I mean, you figure this out romantically. Like it, it's one of the major stumbling blocks of like learning, you know, how to interact with women and where like you realize, oh, I've noticed that like she's always nice and polite to me, but I'm always the one to acknowledge her first. And I think may, maybe as like a kid, you think, oh, she's playing hard to get or whatever. But you do start to realize like, oh, yeah, I'm always the one who puts the effort in. That's what it boils down to. Like, I'm always the one who puts the effort in to acknowledge this other person. And so that plays out online where if you only, <laughs> if they only ever like your posts and you never like their posts back, they're going to be like, oh, I don't, I don't think they like me. I don't think he likes me. I don't think he likes me. Or, or you know, they just, people start to like they go they go inside of themselves about that stuff, even when it's unimportant. And they might even start not liking you. That's the crazy thing about acknowledgement is if somebody feels ignored. They might go from like wanting, like admiring somebody and wanting their acknowledgement to now hating that person. You know, men do that to women. Where men will give women a lot of attention and fawn over them. And then when the woman communicates she's not romantically interested, he snaps. He goes from thinking like, I really like this girl. She's really cool and awesome and pretty. I really like this girl. She's really cool and awesome and pretty. And then the second you realize that what you want isn't an option, you go, she's fucking ugly. It's like you turn into a, and then and you're mad. You get, people get mad too, where it's like, listen, you fucking bitch. You fucking bitch. I mean, it, 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 it happens frequently. It's, it's what they used to call nice guy syndrome. So there's this thing they used to call nice guy syndrome, where guys act really nice to a woman, probably do have a crush on her, find her attractive, maybe cool. But then as soon as their ego is damaged by rejection, they lash out at her. And all they really wanted was acknowledgement. Validation. But you don't owe anybody that. That's what you realize. Like, you don't owe anybody that and nobody owes that to you. And so when you don't get it, you're not losing anything. But what you lose is like, it, when you feel like you've lost something is when you've made an effort that isn't reciprocated. That's what damages people's egos more than anything, is when they when you make an effort and it's not reciprocated, and you know the ego surrounds itself in a shell, and then tries to and with a stinger that comes out that tries to sting the thing that's attacking it, and it comes out instantly. 
all of a sudden, like, the ego is just surrounded in this spiky shell with a scorpion stinger. But all it is is annoying and stupid. It's this really, like, limp, disgusting, thin, elongated stinger that comes out. And it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sting that thing that hurt me. But, uh, you know, that, that circles back to, uh, you know, just, you know, th this protection of, of something that you think is yours. You know, what got me going on the acknowledgement topic again, the social media stuff is like wanting credit because I was saying how like that that sort of person which is a lot of people about many different subjects and things who says like he only knows about that because of me oh I was into that before him I was into that before him this competitiveness this wanting to be first with wanting people to know that you were first. Wanting people to know that like they got their idea from you. They were copying you. You're the trendsetter. But where did you find it? Where did you get it? Speaking for friends of mine and myself, like we're the kind of people who dig for stuff. So sometimes it really does feel like you found something. But for the most part, you very rarely have a find that's all your own. And even if it is your own, that much better. But you do, like, as you get older, though, if, if you have, like, a niche interest or, or something that you do, that you dig into, there is a tendency to want to protect that. Don't tell people about this. Oh, hey, I discovered this cool band. I'm going to share it with you, but you can't share it with It's like, keep this secret. It's like telling somebody a secret. Something in us does that about music, but not as much other things. I mean, I know there are people who really dig into the, the unknown depths of film and feel that way about obscure movies. Like I know it, every single subject in the world, every single interest in the world has this, but music brings it out of people even more than anything else. And I think it's, it's because of what music does to you, because it is transcendental, because it is like this drug, because it is fucking insane. Like when you actually think about a band and what that is, a guy like making these no weird noises with his voice, all these instruments working together. I mean, it's, it's a very strange thing unto itself. And then that it has this effect on you. Often a spirit, even if it's not spiritual music, it can have a spiritual effect. Like those new metal, in, those maniacs who I who would listen to new metal, and they would it would me mean something to them. Like they would go home to their, you know, abusive blue collar household, and like listen to Drowning Pool, and that would be like a spiritual experience. Like that would bring something out of them. So, I mean, it's not surprising that people treat music like the jewel of all jewels and they keep it clutched to their chest. And they do that with music more than anything. 
But it's like when you do share that jewel, there's something that's like, I want credit. Every time you talk about that band, I want you to tell people that you heard about them from me. It's like in some way you're putting your stamp on it. You're writing your name on it. It's almost like you feel just as responsible for manifesting that music as the band themselves. And in a weird roundabout way I won't get into, I think you could actually make an argument for that. I mean, if you dig into obscure music, or any obscure interest for that matter, but music's the example here, it can feel like you manifested it. It can feel like this thing didn't exist until you discovered it. It's true for research as well. If you have a particular interest that you do deep research into, you can easily be like, I feel like I just created this information I found from my mind. I feel like this didn't exist until I went looking for it. I feel like this music didn't exist until I went looking for it. But somehow that gets twisted into like, Every time you tell somebody that you listen to such and such, I want you to tell them that you heard about them from me. Just the ego just going crazy. But part of that is just the wanting acknowledgement again. It's like you want your efforts to be acknowledged. And part of it comes from like, I'm going to be here all night, but like part of it comes from the fact that like we know a large part of ourselves is fake. Like if you're a human being, like at some point in your life, I think you, you just have to eventually come to the realization that, oh yeah, a ton of what I've cared about, a ton of who I've thought I was, was fake. And at the time I was totally, since I felt like I was totally sincere about it. And there's a part of me that's real, but you can only really get in touch with the part of you that's real by acknowledging how much of you is fucking fake. Otherwise, how can you differentiate? If you can't acknowledge the things about you that were fake and still are fake, and you might not know they're fake until later and you look back, but if you can't acknowledge that just like a certain percentage of your body is water, a certain percentage is fake. Maybe it's the same percentage. If you can't acknowledge that, though, you're never going to come to any kind of realization about the part of you that's actually you. And it's probably a very small part. But when we see posers, or when we see the, when, when we see how um, flimsy other people's whims are, when we see the ways that people are willing to adopt something or copy something, we see how fake that is. And it gets into Psych 101 projection stuff here, but there's a reason why that's a popular idea. Just because it's fucking annoying that all everybody says anymore is, oh, he's just projecting. Projecting much? You know, even though it's fucking awful that people say that all the time. We can't forget that that idea is real. And, you know, posers, you know, when someone accuses somebody else of being a poser or somebody accuses someone else of being insincere, I mean, that is the, the, the most common form of pro projection there is. 
and in that way like i mean this is going to sound really obnoxiously psych 101 but it's like when you're when you're pointing that out in someone else it's often your ego reacting to the fact that they're reminding you of how fucking fake you are the kid who gets into the sex pistols and is making fun of people for being into blink 182 when he listened to blink 182 six months ago He's really attacking, you know, this image of himself. You know, he's really lashing out at the poser inside of him. And there's a decent chance that he'll look back at himself when he starts spiking his hair and trying to look like Sid Vicious, which I never did. Did a lot of things. I never did that. But he'll probably look back at that and be like, look at what a fucking poser I was. And I was lashing out at the the kid who got into Blink-182 and thought he was cool. But yeah, I mean, you're you're being reminded about how flimsy and fake and fallen you are. So of course your ego is going to encase itself in spikes and let that stinger come out. It doesn't even hurt. It's just like this buzz. You zap people. Zap. But you see where people also melt down when they're accused of that. Like when someone's accused of being insincere or fake, they can melt down over that. Usually because they know it's true. You know, when, when someone takes that to heart, like if you're true blue about something, some sort of accusation or some sort of judgment or bad attitude on the part of somebody does nothing one way or another. You know, it's what I say. I, I always say this when I bring up Fitbits. Whenever I go on a Fitbit rant, I'm like, I think Fitbits are silly. I think step counters are silly. I'm not a fan of step counters. I'm not I'm not a fan of like looking and seeing how many steps I got in a given day and going like I haven't gotten to my 10,000 steps yet. But I don't I would never make fun of somebody for making use of that tool. You know, someone could make fun of everything I am. But I know what works for me. And if a Fitbit works for you, I don't think you're lame. If you're getting the results you want from a Fitbit, you're not lame at all. You're making it it work for you. And therefore, like, nobody can tell you not to use it. Like, an asshole like me can be like, oh, Fitbit much? Oh, what, you're going to get you 10,000 steps in, huh? Oh, have you got, what, are you on 9,999? What's going to happen if you don't get 10,000 steps today, dude? You know, there's assholes like me who will say shit like that. I've never said that to somebody. But still, like when I hear people talk about that, I always kind of laugh to myself. But the reality is, if you're losing the weight you want to lose, if you're getting in better shape because you're counting your steps, I can't possibly take that away from you. And if somebody else judging that or making fun of that is going to stop you from doing it, well, that just says everything already. That shows you you're not committed to whatever it is you're trying to do. If somebody making a joke about this watch that you carry around that counts your steps all day, if that's going to stop you from using it to your benefit when it's already working for you, well, that sucks. 
That sucks for you. So it's one of those things where if you're committed to something, if you if you truly believe in something, nothing can really shake you. I mean, you see this with your your values. Like some of the ideas being pushed these days are against my own values. And no matter no matter how much I hear that some of my values are backward and shouldn't be shared publicly and that these other values are better and superior and more enlightened, that hasn't changed my beliefs a, a millimeter. Like that hasn't changed what I think by even a millimeter because you can measure these things in using a ruler, it turns out. No, but I mean, I am unmoved. Because I know what my values are. Not to say some of them won't change organically, but they're certainly not going to change. Like my values work for me. They're not perfect. I have a ton of guilt. I, I question myself constantly. I'm critical of myself. But as far as what my values are, I'm only critical of myself when I don't live up to those values because those values have stayed pretty firm. And no matter what somebody says about those, no matter what's being pushed elsewhere, that's not going to change me. If that was a Fitbit and it was working for me, somebody could say whatever they want. They could, they could recommend whatever they want as an alternative. It wouldn't change the fact that the Fitbit is working for me. My, my values are Fitbit. But a lot of people can be swayed by that. You know, a lot of people can be swayed by negative attention. And you see it even like when someone is trying to make positive life changes, a big, a big motivation for it is they want validation and acknowledgement. Like some people have it in their head that guys work out and get in shape just to attract women. It's nice that it's an option. It's nice to be athletic or fit and go to a public place and know that women look at your body and aren't disgusted by it. But to think that your entire motivation for doing that is to pick up women, validation, or to get compliments or to have people care, like that's not the only reason to work out or be in shape. But for some people it is. For some people, like they are working out because they want to attract more women. And it turns out that is one way to do it. You're probably going to be better off. You're probably going to be more attractive than you would otherwise. Not to say that's the only part of it, but that, that helps. But there's some people who like want to lose weight just so that people say to them, oh, you look good. You've lost weight. If they were trapped in uh, solitary confinement with, you know, a barbell and a rowing machine, but nobody was ever going to see them ever again, they might not use those things. If they're not going to get some kind of acknowledgement or validation, they might not ever touch those weights. There's a lot of people who would for their own reasons. There's plenty of people who work out and get in shape because they understand the value of that in their own singular life. But there's some people, though, where it's like when you remove 
acknowledgement and validation from the equation, they're not even going to do that thing to begin with because that was their motivation. But, uh, um, where am I going here? I don't know. I mean, it, it goes back to like why you do anything. I mean, take away the weights, take away fitness and you're in solitary confinement and you have all of the interests and fashion accessories in the world available to you. You're in solitary confinement, but there's this magical closet where you can be anything and find anything, any kind of book, any kind of music, any kind of clothes. You'd learn a lot about yourself based on what you gravitate toward because you'd no longer be modeling yourself after other people. You'd no longer be interested in things because of what that would bring you socially. You'd no longer try to be popular or try to fit in or impress a certain type of person. You wouldn't have any points of reference for what to wear. You might read an entirely different type of book than you would otherwise. I mean, there's people who read books so that they can get acknowledgement from a type of person who reads those kind of books. There's guys who go out to bars reading a certain author hoping that that'll impress a certain type of woman and she'll talk to him. He may have no interest in that book, but he knows that that's a book women like. He knows that's a book women like, so he reads it. He knows that listening to this type of music will get him acknowledged by a certain type of person. He knows that dressing a certain way will get him validated by a certain type of person. So what's he going to do in solitary confinement when he can no longer bounce that off other people? What kind of books is he going to read? What kind of music is he going to listen to? How is he going to dress? Well, I think that you get a taste of that sometimes in your life. I mean, I've talked on here about the process of abandoning interests of mine or abandoning things that I thought were important. Not to say I've been in solitary confinement, but going through that process, then the last couple years of forced isolation as well as deliberate isolation, and while it might not be solitary confinement, I think you do get a taste of what I'm talking about. You start to realize what you actually gravitate toward, what you actually genuinely like. You're no longer doing things because a certain type of person is going to see you doing it. I mean, I think I told this story on here recently. I mean, sometimes I record episodes and don't release them, if you can believe that. Um, but uh, I, I talked about the girl in my first grade class, Elizabeth. Beautiful blonde girl, very mature for her age. She was a year older than me. Seemed like a, a grown woman to me at the time. First crush I ever remember having... Seven years old, Elizabeth. Beautiful name. Elizabeth. 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 And uh, how she was obsessed with horses. And so I printed out this picture of a horse one day and brought it to school and put it on my desk because I wanted Elizabeth's acknowledgement. That might as well have been my Tinder profile. 
seven, uh, seven years old in 1991. Might have been my uh, my Tinder profile. That might as well have been me typing something into my Tinder profile that wasn't true or was a distortion of the truth just so a girl would be like, oh, he's into the thing I like. I'm going to send him a message. I'm going to swipe right. That might as well have been what I was doing. I printed out a picture of a horse. Horses are beautiful and great. I don't care about horses. As a kid, I wasn't into horses. But I printed out a picture of a horse from the program Kid Picks. My family had this primitive black and white computer that ran the program Kid Picks. And it allowed you to like make this image of a horse. It was like a drawing, pre-made. But I printed that out, brought it to school, put it on my desk. It was a scheme. As innocent as it was, it was a scheme. It was what we call a scheme to get Elizabeth's attention. And you know what? She walked by and she said, oh, a horse. Ooh, a horse. And that was it. We're not married. We don't have any kids. That was it. But you know what? I got exactly what I wanted. I got a little thrill. I got a little moment of excitement. Seven-year-old me got this little burst of excitement because my scheme basically worked. I was seven years old. It wasn't like we were going to become boyfriend and girlfriend. That was about the most I could have gotten out of it. She wasn't going to sit there. These two seven-year-olds aren't going to sit there and start talking about horses. And she would have found out real quick I don't know anything. She would have found out it was all a bluff. I was lying. I was lying. What I did is it was dishonest. Um, I mean, it reminds me when I was on OkCupid, a girl messaged me or I messaged her or something. Somebody messaged somebody. And uh, she brought up that she was into Law and Order, the show Law and Order. I'm not a fan. I don't hate it, but I would never watch it on my own. But I had an ex-girlfriend who watched it religiously, so I knew a lot about it. It was it was my ex-girlfriend's favorite show. She watched it all the fucking time, every day. So every day for like three years, I saw bits and pieces of Law and Order, and my girlfriend talked to me about it. So I used what I learned, and this girl was like talking about Law and Order, and I kind of pretended like I was into it. I was like, oh yeah, like Law and Order, like such and such character. I went on a date with her and didn't get along with her at all. This is like 2012, 2013, who knows, somewhere around there, 2013, 2014. Didn't get along at all. She immediately started talking about, like, white male privilege and all the stuff that is completely mainstream now. But she just launched into that stuff and was really hostile out of no, for no reason. I was really nice. I, I, I was genuinely nice about everything. And so I just told her, I'm a, I'm a Republican. She's like, you're a what? I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just a Republican, so I don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, that, that cracked her brain. And a group of friends of mine who were women were at the same bar and I, I said to her, oh, I'm, I'm, I have to meet up with some friends, so I've got to cut it short. And I literally just got up and walked over to this other table of women, and she left. And I saw her walking down the street out the window, and she had kind of bad posture. And 
a, like one of these little backpacks on, like one of those tiny backpacks, but it was like on her back. And it just, it just really bummed me out. Like she looked, it was so like dark. It was such a dark and sad sight. Because it came across like self-sabotage or something. Because like when she showed up, like I didn't find her attractive. Like she looked like she was pretty in her photos, but she showed up and I just wasn't attracted to her in person. But you know, if she had been decent, like who knows? Like who knows? I probably would have viewed her differently. But like the fact that she was so hostile... And so politically charged, even then, 2013, whatever it was, like making all the same neo-progressive talking points that you see every day now if you go online. But then the crazy part about that is then she messaged me like a half hour later and she was like, that was nice. Like, do you want to do you want to go out again? And I was like, am I missing something? Like, I think I said something polite back, but I just remember like feeling like, wait a second, like. That didn't feel like a disaster to you? That felt like a good date that you would want to revisit? Me saying, like, I have to go and meet up with friends and, like, literally just walking across the bar and sitting at a table of just female friends. Like, none of that signaled that maybe this was a, a failure of a date. But you know what? I, I shouldn't have lied. I shouldn't have pretended that I liked Law & Order. But that's what you do. I mean, it's harmless. I'm not, I'm not a monster. I'm just saying, though, that like me printing out the horse as a kid, it's the same thing. It's being like, hey, I like horses too, Elizabeth. Oh, I like Law and Order too, and I, I know enough about it to lie and make it sound like I know, like I like it. But something's in us that makes us do that, and we do it for acknowledgement. We lie for acknowledgement our entire lives. We make shit up. We cast spells, or we think we're casting spells. And, uh, you know, well, here's a scenario. Like, I, I laid out this scenario. I gotta go to bed. Fuck. <laughs> here's a scenario. <laughs> As if I, I... God, I gotta go to bed. But, uh... Uh, who's, who's holding me hostage here? I mean, I swear there's an invisible gun on me making me do this, but I don't know. But another scenario, just in the same way, like if you were in solitary confinement with a magical trunk filled with anything and everything, a magical closet filled with anything and everything you could ever be interested in to keep you entertained. And let's say you're not even sad and depressed. Like even though you're in solitary Let's say you're not sad or depressed about it. Like you have enough positive stimulation somehow that like the fact that you're isolated from society and people isn't bothering you. Still, like what are you going to do with that magical closet filled with everything you could ever be interested in, everything you could ever want to wear, everything you could ever want to do? I mean, I don't know why I have to say that you're in solitary confinement. Let's just say the whole world is available to you. But you're not going to interact or see interact with or see anybody. What would you be interested in? How would you look? What would you do? The same thing would apply to like, what if a woman would be interested in you no matter what you were like or what you were into? Let's say no matter what you were interested in, 
what you cared about, what you looked like, how you dressed, no matter what, you would be able to get the woman of your dreams. What would you be like? What would you be interested in? What would you care about? How would you dress? You know, it's a similar sort of scenario. In both those scenarios, what I'm saying is acknowledgement is off the table. Validation is off the table. What would you do to validate yourself? What would you do to acknowledge yourself if getting acknowledgement and validation from other people wasn't a component? It also wouldn't be something you're missing. In this very hypothetical scenario, you wouldn't feel the absence of those things either. Val ideas like validation and acknowledgement just wouldn't even be in your head anywhere. They would; Those feelings wouldn't even be a part of your life. Your life is otherwise content. What would you be into? What would you be like? When you ask questions like that, you start to realize you don't have an answer. And you start to realize, too, like how much of your life is an illusion you've created. And sometimes you create these illusions and trick yourself into believing that they were real all along. People get tattoos and they realize how awful they are and they trick themselves into thinking they really wanted it and it has a lot of meaning. Oh, well, this tattoo I got when I was 19, well, it... It actually means this to me, and it's, it, it tells a story about my life. Even though I hate it, it tells a story about my life. And, and people come up with all these justification, these coping mechanisms. When the reality is, like, you got a tattoo when it was kind of edgy and you wanted to be cool. Maybe you, you wanted to impress a certain girl who likes tattoos. And now you're stuck with it and you hate it. And deep down, you know that it, it's totally fake. It's more fake than a, you know, a henna tattoo. But you got to justify it. You got to spin it. You, you got to. You start to believe that you got it for some valid reason. I'm not. I'm not knocking tattoos. I like tattoos. I think tattoos are attractive on women. I think that I, I like women without tattoos as well, but. I'm just saying, like, I'm not anti-tattoo on people. I'm just saying that a lot of people get them for very phony reasons, and that's their right. But a tattoo is a good example, because you can never really get rid of it. I guess you can get laser surgery, but still, for the most part, you can never get rid of a tattoo. It's something you have to live with. And many times you get it for the, the flimsiest of reasons. And so you do that with a million other things. I mean, there are things in my life that as of the last two years, if you'd asked me uh, two years ago if I still cared about it or if it still meant something to me, I would have told you yes. But since then, I realize it doesn't matter or it didn't matter or it no, more likely it no longer mattered. And I could keep telling myself it does, but the truth is it doesn't. The truth is I've moved on from that. And when you move on from something or you recognize that you never really cared about something, you just somehow got invested in it. I mean, people tell themselves that about love. 
But when you, you realize that, you know, sometimes your ego goes into that defense mode, stinger mode. It tries to protect itself. And, uh, you know, I've never done any real reading on Freud or the ego. I know the basics, but my own understanding of whatever that is, is that it's constantly trying to protect the fact that it's constantly trying to shield you from the fact that so many things are completely illusory. It's constantly trying to trick you into thinking those these things are real and they matter. Your ego spends a lot of juice. It uses up a lot of fuel. It drains a lot out of you trying to tell you this is all real and it matters. Protect this. Get acknowledgement. Get validated. That other thing, it's fake. All, all that other stuff is Avril Lavigne. Avril Lavigne's a poser. She's fake. Stuff you're into is real and cool. Nickelback, Nickelback, Nickelback. They're fake and not real. They're the worst band in the world. You have good taste. Nickelback sucks. You have good taste. Your ego does that. And it, it shields you from the truth that the things you're into probably suck too. And it's okay that you like them, but they probably suck too. The sequel sucked too. One of the first porn, the second porn movie ever made. First porn movie ever made was called Suck. Second porn movie ever made was called Suck 2. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. I'm going to start telling people that. If I'm just having a fun conversation with people, I'm like, did you know that the first porn movie ever made was called Suck? <laughs> first, <laughs> that's, that's something that I'm always... Uh, I'm always wanting to do more of is just lie. I can never quite get myself to do it, but there's a, a, a mischief maker inside of me that really wants to lie more in, in no stakes situations. Like I don't want to benefit from these lies, but I want to, I want to be that guy who tells people complete bullshit. Who says, Oh, do you know the first porno movies called suck? And they made a sequel called Suck 2. Just make shit up. You used to be able to do that. You used to be able to do that. Because if you were to tell someone that now, if you were to tell someone now that the first porn movie ever made was called Suck, Suck, they'd Google it in front of you. They'd type it into their phone. They'd be like, I don't believe you. And they'd, they'd fact check you. Or they'd, they'd go home that night and fact check you. Which is a form of calling you a poser, almost. Because it's all about dishonesty. When you call somebody a poser or think somebody's a poser, you're saying they're dishonest. Like when people hated on Avril Lavigne. Dropping my vape. When, when people hated on Avril Lavigne, a big part of that was like, she's dishonest. What that young woman is doing is dishonest. She's an off-brand, attractive Canadian girl. She's not really a rebel. The way she wears her tie with a wife beater and baggy, sagging pants is dishonest. The honest way to do that is to go to the thrift store. 
and listen to real punk. Meanwhile, you're dishonest too. You know, if you feel threatened by dishonesty, there's a decent chance that you're being dishonest too. And uh, we we live in a whirlwind of it. I mean, it and there, it knows no end. It knows no bounds. I mean, you see it in religion. There's people who go to church, same church every Sunday, and then whisper behind each other's back. So she's not. She doesn't really believe. She doesn't really believe in our religion. She doesn't really believe in our religion. She doesn't really believe in our religion. Oh, she she's a hypocrite because uh, she comes to church every Sunday. She cheated on her husband. You know, we're always looking for that. That's calling somebody a poser. I knew a Mormon girl, and and somebody privately sent her messages. This is when the phone thing was new. The phone thing was brand new. People, kids were just starting to text. They were just starting to, to do the sexton. But somebody sent this Mormon girl like messages like like calling her a Jack Mormon. And I didn't know what that meant. And I asked, and it turned out that it, it's like calling someone a false Mormon. It's like a it's like a Muslim. A Muslim. It's like a Muslim calling somebody an infidel. Which is their word for poser. When a Muslim calls somebody a infidel, an infidel, they're calling them a poser. They're saying you're not a true believer in in Allah, in the in the the one true God. You're not a pious Muslim. You're not a pious Muslim. You're not a pious Muslim. That's what they're they're calling you a poser. They're saying you're dishonest, you're a hypocrite, you're lying, infidel, Jack Mormon. Jack Mormon, it turns out, is just what you call a, a Mormon poser. There's a million terms for this. You know, there's um, religions are filled with them because religions have so many purity tests and so many guidelines and rules that you're supposed to follow, they have, they're especially sensitive to posers. What's funny in Buddhism is, of course, there's a lot of posers in Buddhism. But it's also based on, like, like I mean, what I've realized about, you know, being into Buddhism for a number of years now is just a lot of it revolves around, like, accepting the fact that you're a poser. And realizing, like, the world's a poser, too. And that's just how it works. Like, that's just a fact of reality. And by accepting that, you get closer to some kind of essence. Which plays into what I was talking about, about acknowledging and accepting the parts of you that are fake, which might be 70% of your body like water. But accepting that is the only way you can recognize like what 
it's the only way you can even come close to recognizing like what the essence of you actually is, is to acknowledge how much of you is flimsy, how much of it is made up of things that you pretended to be or, or you wanted to get something out of that you tricked yourself into believing are real. And, you know, some of the teachings in Buddhism like run right up against this. And they caution you not to accuse other people of being posers because the truth is you're one too. And only posers feel threatened by other posers. And it is funny in something like Buddhism that you see people acting fake and being dishonest while pretending to be an adherent of these teachings that are all about this great dishonesty and, and great insincerity that tricks us all the time. This disingenuineness, dis, dis, disingenuity, I don't know how you say that. There's something disingenuous. And you know it. From the time you're a little kid, you see it in other people. You see it in the world around you. You see it in school. You might even see it in your parents. You start to realize that there's something disingenuous in the air. And that makes some people lose all hope and faith. That makes some people give up. That turns some people into nihilists. Or they double down on some weird belief. They double down. Double down. But uh, accepting it is, you know, very difficult to do. Because it involves accepting that fact about yourself. I mean, I worked with a woman, a lesbian woman, and she was on an online dating site. And there was a woman on there that she really wanted to date. Really wanted to date. And she was able to, I think the woman had her real name or something. Like she was able to find out who this woman was. And like, like, like looked at her social media pages. Like just looked her up. Did a little Googling or something. And was able to like find out what this woman was into. And so the woman I worked with, and she admitted this, interestingly, she like designed her profile like just to get this other woman's attention. Like she lied. She created, she was posing. And it worked though. And I believe they eventually got married. I heard they got married later. Good for them. But it was always interesting to me that it was built on this initial lie. And maybe that was just uh, just what she needed to kind of get the, get the machine rolling. I'm not saying she's a bad person for doing that. But it's, it's because, I mean, I, I, like I said before, like I exaggerated like how much I liked Law & Order because one of like the one women to message me on OkCupid okay that month wanted to talk about law and order. So I was like, sure. I didn't tailor my fucking profile around it. I didn't go onto my OkCupid okay profile and write, 
favorite show, Law and Order. Law and Order. Law and Order. I didn't. I didn't tailor my personality around Law and Order, but when it came up, I was a little bit dishonest. Didn't work out anyway. I printed out a picture of a horse when I was seven years old. Not that much different than my coworker, my lesbian coworker, basically online stalking this woman she wanted to impress so that she could like pretend to be into the same things and get the conversation rolling. But it's the same thing. I didn't know what I, I didn't expect anything. I just wanted validation. I wanted acknowledgement from this girl, Elizabeth, that I liked. Beautiful Elizabeth. And so I printed out a picture of a horse like I gave a fuck about horses. The problem is, is like you can become that. You can become that behavior. You can forget that that's your motivation somewhere. You can lie to yourself. Your ego encases itself in its spiky shell. And it convinces you. It convinces you that all of these artifices you've created are actually you. Meanwhile, you wonder why the fuck you don't like your life. A lot of swearing. I apologize. But then you start wondering, you know, why you're unhappy, why you're not content, why you don't like who you are. You know, people wonder that. And it's like, well, you've doubled down on all these lies you've been telling yourself since you were a kid. Your relationship, your marriage might even be built on a lie. You pretended to be something other than what you were because you were so scared of not being acknowledged. You were so scared of not being validated. You pretended to like something. You pretended to be a certain way. You pretended something mattered to you. Mattered. And uh, you wonder why, and you doubled down on it. You never acknowledged that certain percentage of your being, that 75% water level amount of your being it's probably the same percentage as the water in your body which i heard is the same percentage as the water on planet earth i heard water <laughs> i heard i heard planet earth has 75 percent water and so does the human body well guess what the earth is also 70 percent illusion and so are you you can uh, fact check me you can measure it get out your tape measure it's going to be hard to measure illusion Unless you know where to look, but I promise you it's 75% of everything. Maybe more. Maybe it's 95%. That's one of the scariest things you can possibly acknowledge. All this shit I think I am, all this shit I think I care about is mostly illusion. But it's that little bit that's not. This isn't supposed to be a, a negative outlook. This is actually the most positive outlook you could ever hope for. Because you start experiencing what's genuinely good. You start being honest with yourself. You start living like that person who's in solitary confinement. Who is now no longer making decisions based on other people's perception. You're no longer living a life that's based on getting acknowledgement from other people. That's based on getting acknowledgement. 
You're no longer tailing, tailoring yourself to the whims of the prettiest girl in the room. You're no longer trying to convince that person you admire that you're cool too. And of course we have to do a certain amount of this for survival. Of course you have to lie all the time to survive. You have to lie to work. And we all know you're lying. If you work in customer service, you lie all day long. All you do is lie. You smile when you're not happy. You treat people with respect even when they're tyrannical babies about the smallest, most unimportant things. Their french fries aren't as hot as they want. You have to keep up a lie just to satisfy them so that they don't get upset over the $4 they spent on a, on a fast food meal. You have to do a certain amount of that. You have to lie. You know, <laughs> lying is a tool you can, you know, lying has a positive use. Pretending has a good purpose. But when you do less of it, I think you know what the, the good purpose is. You, you know what the useful purpose is. When you stop doing it all the time. And, uh, and you realize how quickly these things pass. You know, you realize how quickly things change. And your emotions lie to you constantly. All this stuff is rooted in your emotions, obviously. But your emotions lie to you all the fucking time. Telling you things are important that aren't. Telling you what to pay attention to. You see it with current events where people say like, Oh my God, this is making me feel something. I've got to say something. I've got to do something. Oh, Ukraine. What's going on in Ukraine is making me... i got to say something. You're going to forget about it in a few months. There's a good chance you're lying. If you were in solitary confinement and you no longer cared about getting acknowledgement, but you could do anything you wanted to do, would you still put a Ukrainian flag sticker on your things? If you're in solitary confinement with everything available to you in the world, Accept the perception of other people, how people perceive you. Would you still put a fucking blue and yellow Ukrainian flag sticker on your shit? Probably not. Probably not. And so you, you get caught up in that stuff, but it comes and goes. Because your emotions are lying to you. Not that these things aren't important. But that thing that, that you feel compelled to do, that way that you, you are drawn to express it. There's a good chance it's not honest. There's a good chance you're a poser. They've been around a long, long time. I would love to know who the first poser was and shake his hand. I don't know if it was a man or a woman. I could see it going either way. Maybe Adam and Eve. Maybe one of them was the first poser. Maybe it started from the beginning. Maybe the first man was a poser.
but I would love to meet the first poser and shake their hand. But yeah, I could see it being a man or a woman, because on one hand, men will be very deceptive. Men will lie to impress women, to impress each other. So I could see the first poser being a man on that level. But women are so vulnerable to social contagion. That's a good noise, Batty. Women are so vulnerable to social contagion that I could see the first woman being a poser too, but men will be men will just create total lies. I mean, you even see it among animals. There are animals who will lie to attract a mate. So, uh, I think it goes back to the beginning. You know, I, I think being dishonest, being deceptive goes back to the very beginning. And if that's the case, how could you do anything except accept that fact? If it's always been here. If the illusion has always been here, and I, I think it has, as long as we've been here. How could you really do anything other than accept it? Because it seems like it's necessary. You know, acknowledge, you know, acknowledging that it's there, we're really out there here. We're really far out in space. We're in the weeds of a foreign planet. We're lost in the weeds of a foreign planet right now. But still, like, that's another part of this acceptance is that, like, on one hand, I can accept that so many of the things that I think I am, so many of the things that people think they are, so many of the things that I think people are and they think I am, so much of the world around us, the things, the institutions we've created are illusory. They're dishonest. They're not real. But if that's always been here, it seems like the illusion is necessary. And that's kind of where I'm at. You know, most of what I'm talking about here is not new to me. It's been an ongoing process. It's something many people have talked about in different times and places. This isn't a fresh take. A lot of it probably sounds like cliche bullshit. Because I'm fallen too. But uh, where I'm at is... Accepting that 75% of everything or more is illusory, but also accepting that that illusion is necessary. And something about that makes me happy. Why it makes me happy, I wouldn't be able to tell you. But something about accepting that feels right. It feels good. Because it becomes no, it, it's no longer about fighting the illusion and rebelling against the illusion, but just kind of enjoying it. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains 
Children can run free.